This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thank you for listening to another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. If you'd like to get prompted with new episodes, just tap or click subscribe, or you can also just join us every Thursday. Now, this week, we're taking a journey through time and the mind of an author whose work has sent shivers down spines for more than a century. Bram Stoker's Dracula novel was heavily influenced by the harbour town of Whitby in North Yorkshire and its ruined Whitby Abbey, which is cared for by English heritage. And as we're about to discover, the Abbey continues to influence popular culture. Joining us to discuss the Abbey's history and how it became part of Gothic literary history are English Heritage Senior Properties Historian Dr Michael Carter and Dr Mary Going, who is Research Associate at the University of Sheffield. Hello. Hello, it's a real pleasure to be back. And just a quick warning before we continue, this episode does contain spoilers and some graphic descriptions, which some listeners might wish to avoid. So, Michael, first of all, can you describe Whitby Abbey and its location in North Yorkshire for those who aren't familiar with it? It must be one of the most famous monastic ruins anywhere in the British Isles. The ruins of the 13th century church dominate the headland at Whitby. Stark ruins overlooking the sea in a very exposed location. And the history of monastic settlement there goes back to the mid-7th century and the monasteries established there or refounded there by St Hilda or St Hild, uh, which became internationally famous even in its own day. I think a token or an indication of just how important it was was the fact that in 664, the epoch-making synod of Whitby to settle disputed aspects in English ecclesiastical custom was held there. And pertinent to what we're going to be talking to today, it was a place of great cultural significance. And um, Cademan, the father of English verse, was a cowhand at the monastery. Now, that monastery perishes in the 9th century due to Viking or Danish raiders and monastic settlement returns in the 11th century in the aftermath of the Norman conquest. And the monastery establishes itself as one of the most important religious houses in medieval Yorkshire. Religious life there is brought to an end in 1539 during Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries and we're left with these ruins that have captured the imagination of authors and artists over the centuries, not least Bram Stoker. It's worth describing as well what ruins we're looking at today because how long has the abbey existed? Presumably there was a previous abbey and the ruins that we see today are a later Absolutely, version. Absolutely, yeah. Nothing remains above ground of the Anglo-Saxon monastery. There's some fantastic archaeological evidence from it, brilliantly exhibited in the site museum, which opened a few years ago. Our curator Susan Harrison did a really brilliant job there. But we're looking at the remains of the post-conquest monastery. And what we can see, the shattered remains of the church, it suffered because of its headland location, I can tell you. They mainly date between the 13th and the 15th century. It is a very, very important Gothic in the architectural term ruin building there in northern England, a building of actually of international significance. Now, the Synod at Whitby, which we covered in episode two of the English Heritage Podcast, a long time ago now, featuring the important character of St Hild, when did that take place? And also, just what did it decide? 
Yeah, it's in 664, and it's about disputed aspects of ecclesiastical observance, church observance and custom in England. And it's a time when the English, the Anglo-Saxons, are being converted to Christianity. And the missionaries come from Rome and also from Ireland, and they do things slightly differently, and they meet in Northumbria. And it's all about how to calculate the date of Easter, and also things of like outward signs of monastic observance, such as the tonsure or the monastic haircut. The synod comes down on the side of Roman observance, and to this day, across Christendom, we still use, or across Western Christendom rather, we still use the method of calculating the date of Easter that was agreed at the Synod of Whitby all those centuries ago. And it has huge cultural significance. It means that the church in England looks towards the continent, and especially towards Rome in terms of its observance and its customs. So it really was a seminal decision for the Christian international culture that we have today. Yeah, definitely, for the culture of Anglo-Saxon England and later. And also very important as well is that it establishes Whitby's reputation as a place of sanctity, a place of saints. And that is something that endures throughout the Middle Ages and is in stark contrast to what we're going to be talking about today. You also mentioned that the ruins that we see today are as a result of Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries. Absolutely, yeah. Whitby, like every other religious house in England and Wales, falls during Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries, 1535 to 1540. Whitby is a relatively late dissolution in that process. The monks are, dis- are dispersed in 1539 with pensions. Some of them become priests. Large parts of the monastery are ruined at that time. The shell of the church, however, is left more or less intact. But its exposed headland position means that it gradually collapses. And the ruins we see today are the product of centuries of exposure to the elements of neglect and natural decay. And in actual fact, they were badly damaged in World War I by shelling from German warships out there in the North Sea. I suppose with the action of the elements and the behaviour of the sun rising, setting, you get amazing images of the abbey against the sky, don't you? And I think that's uh, something that we should all bear in mind as we continue with this podcast and and, and get into into the story of Dracula and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, it's an incredibly atmospheric site. It's very, very photogenic. I recommend anybody with an Instagram account to get there and take some photographs. Um, You can't but help capture images of beauty of these imposing ruins in their environment. Now, go there on a sunny day, hey, and it's a scene of absolute beauty. Go there on a day when the sky is leaden and the rain is horizontal and you get a different impression of the ruins and they are a very, very gothic in a 19th century literary sense and it's intimidating and you can see why they have stimulated the gothic imagination for so long. Mary, I think you'll understand that pretty clearly as well because you are a research associate at the University of Sheffield We're going to talk to you now about uh, Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula and his visit to Whitby. Had he always been a novelist before working on this story? So no, actually. So Stoker originally graduated from Trinity College Dublin with honours in mathematics. 
But he has since described this degree choice to have been a mistake, and he soon turned to theatre and literature, starting writing as a theatre critic for the Dublin Evening Mail, and then eventually moving to London, where he became the manager of Henry Irving's Lyceum Theatre. So Henry Irving was a very, very popular Shakespearean actor in the Victorian period. And whilst he was there, he kept his eye on fiction and began writing and, and then publishing his own stories. How many novels did Stoker write then in total? He was quite prolific. So he wrote about 10 novels, as well as two novellas during his lifetime, including The Lair of the White Worm, which was published in 1911. And this is a really interesting text. So like parts of Dracula, this novel draws on legend, specifically the English legend of the Lambton Worm, in which local villages are terrorised by a giant worm. It's actually considered to be one of the worst books ever written. But it has been turned into a film, so if you want to go and see it, it was very loosely adapted by Ken Russell into a 1980 film of the same name. And he also wrote a lot of short stories as well as non-fiction. So he wrote a biography of his friend Henry Irving, as well as a collection on famous imposters, which was kind of exploring different supernatural characters. And where does Bram Stoker's Dracula feature in the timeline of all that work that you've described? So Bram Stoker first visited Whitby in July of 1890, and he'd already kind of started work on on a kind of vampire novel before this time. The actual text Dracula wasn't published until 1897. So he did spend a lot of time working on this novel, but quite a lot of it, as, as we'll find out, quite a lot of his ideas were found and discovered in Whitby and draw on a lot of the locale, including the Abbey, as well as local legends. Just so the Iron listeners have got it straight in our heads... In the chronology of Bram Stoker's literary career, in terms of publication dates, I suppose Dracula appears, what, later on compared to his previous works? Yeah, he was continuing to publish in into the kind of early decades of, of the 20th century, but most of his publications were in that kind of le- late kind of decade of, of the 1890s. So what brought Bram Stoker to Whitby? Was it to do with work? A little bit, yeah. He was basically really exhausted from overworking and he just wanted a break, a little bit of kind of R&R. So Henry Irving, who at this point was not just his, his kind of colleague, but also his friend, recommended that he visit Whitby. So Irving knew the town quite well. He'd once run a circus there and he recommended that Bram Stoker go there for some rest and a little bit of a holiday. So Stoker first visited in July of 1890 and he stayed at the Sixth Royal Crescent, which was a guest house run by Mrs. Emma Vesey. And obviously, although he wanted a little bit of rest, he's a novelist and a writer, and it's hard to put those kinds of things down. So while he was there, he continued to work on his novel. Does Sixth Royal Crescent still exist? It does, yes. And you can go and visit there. And there's a, a little kind of blue plaque right outside the house, so you know exactly where he stayed. But was Whitby even a tourist attraction back then in 1890 when Bram Stoker visited? Absolutely. Since the 18th century, Whitby had been a really popular tourist destination because it is beautiful. It's got really amazing and beautiful seaside vistas. But what really brought it into kind of being a a really, really popular tourist destination was the arrival of the railway, which made it really easy in the 19th century for people across Britain to visit the northern seaside town. So people would visit 
they just hop on a train, go and visit, have a look at the Abbey, have a look at the near, nearby River Esk. They'd also buy Whitby Jet. So Jet is a, is a type of black gemstone that became really fashionable during the Victorian period. And it was mined in Whitby and people would visit specifically to buy Whitby Jet. And the railway is also really important within Dracula for many different reasons. I think it's integral to the eventual demise of Dracula himself. But another reason is just showing to readers how easy it is to get to Whitby by train for a little holiday. And one of the characters in the novel, Mina, arrives in Whitby by train to visit her friend Lucy, who is also staying at the Royal Crescent, like Stoker. (laughs) And she helpfully documents quite a lot of the popular tourist attractions in and around Whitby. Okay, very interesting. So it was very much um, a novel of its time that people could very much identify with. Very much so. And I think that's what's really interesting about Dracula compared to older kind of gothic texts in that Stoker really brings his narrative into the present moment of the 19th century. People can recognise the locations and the technology within the text. Speaking of past versus present, you've mentioned some dates. The publication date was 1897. The visit was seven years earlier in 1890. So how does it take seven years for a novel to get published, I suppose? (laughs) It's, It's a long time to be working on a text, isn't it? Yes, for Stoker, probably not. There's two main reasons as to why it took so long. The first one is research and the second one is drafting or that should probably be redrafting and redrafting and redrafting. So Stoker did a lot of research for the novel, including in Whitby at the public library and also by just walking around and talking to locals. But he also did a lot of research at the London Library as well. And at these locations, he compiled a lot of notes on vampires and different places and legends, as well as outlining various potential characters and plot lines. Not all of these ideas made it into the final novel. And he also found writing really difficult, which I'm sure we can all kind of understand. But some of his notes have survived. So we know how prolific and thorough Stoker was with his research. So in 2018, the London Library actually discovered some of the books that he had used in this library and they still had his notes and marginalia. So he was a little bit naughty, you know, writing in library books. But what that means is that his notes have been preserved. And there's also a massive tranche of his notes that are currently in the possession of the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia that you can go and visit or they have some online as well. But if you can't get to Philadelphia, obviously, it's quite a long way for everyone to go. We can also see um, some of the pieces that have been cut from Dracula. So he has a short story called Dracula's Guest that a lot of people believe was actually meant to be the first chapter of Dracula. So you can go and read that as well. Well, don't worry too much about the Philadelphia connection, because I'm sure we've got some transatlantic international listeners who potentially want to make a visit to the city of brotherly love and they can find out a bit more about Dracula in their own country. So that's quite useful, actually. But um, I understand that uh, before Dracula became this international sensation, it, it started off as a play. It did, yes. To put it quite simply, Stoker was a massive fanboy of his friend Henry Irving, so much so that he eventually wrote an autobiography of his friend. And originally he had had envisaged a play about a different supernatural character called the Wandering Jew, which is another mythical and supernatural figure. 
And he imagined that Irving would have the starring role in this play. And obviously this play never came to be. He never wrote it. But what we get instead is the novel Dracula. And I think there is quite a lot of overlap with Stoker's interest in the mythical figure of the Wandering Jew and his creation of the vampire Dracula. And then he also adapted his novel into a theatrical version himself. And this was primarily for copyright reasons. So the play was titled Dracula the Undead, and the script was put together quite hastily. It's not very good. But again, the main reason for this was so that Stoker could retain the dramatic rights to his work. And he also, in this play, wanted his friend, Henry Irving, to act in this play. But Irving made his feelings very, very clear when he told Stoker that the play was dreadful. He then refused to play Dracula in the play. And in the end, Dracula the Undead, which debuted eight days before the novel was published in May 1897. So they came out quite quickly together. But this play was only performed once and it had a grand total of two paying customers. Oh, right. Okay. I like the fact that Irving used the word dreadful, um, which (laughs) I think is quite interesting. It's sort of got a new meaning in that sense. But there is a lot of dread in Dracula and and all this sort of this chilling feeling as well, but obviously not in the play version. Let's get into the uh, origins then of the character of Dracula and also of the story. So what was going through Stoker's mind as he was staying in Whitby in 1890? How did he sort of develop all his ideas? So I've talked a little bit about his research process already, but in Whitby specifically, he would take daily walks where he would roam the streets, take in the sights and talk to the locals to find out as much as he could about local stories and legends. So there was one story, for example, that he heard local reports of about a shipwreck of a Russian ship called the Dimitri, which happened a few years before his stay. And he worked these reports into his novel with the ship, the Demeter, which is the ship that brought Dracula from Transylvania to Britain. And exploring the East Cliff and the graveyard of St. Mary's, in particular St. Mary's Church, Stoker also borrowed a number of names from the gravestones for his novel. So one of the names that he takes is Swales, who in the novel is, is a kind old local who becomes friends with Mina and Lucy. And it's Swales who tells them local superstitions and lost sailors. So I think we can see in a lot of the Whitby portions of Dracula, they're almost echoing Stoker's own experience within Whitby. Without giving away too much about the story and ruining it for people, what's the basic story of Dracula? I believe there's this shipwreck and this is how Dracula comes ashore to Whitby and he comes in the form of a dog. Is that right? Yeah, and it's a very gothic kind of moment in the text. So Dracula is, I'm sure this isn't a spoiler, a vampire from Transylvania and he is throughout the novel attempting to move to Britain And I guess we can kind of read into that, that he has plans of domination. So it is this kind of threat from the East plot line. And through the text, he comes to Whitby via the ship. And there are certain rules that vampires have to adhere by. And one of them is that he cannot bring himself onto a ship or off a ship. And he's also trying to conceal who he is. So there's many different things that he can turn into, including the dog, also a bat, of course, but also mist, as well as being, you know, quite a creepy vampire as well. But it all begins in Whitby and then he, he moves his way down to London. But Whitby is the start where you have this really gothic, dramatic shipwreck. Everyone else on the ship is dead. 
And the only living being that comes off of this ship is a massive dog that bounds off of the ship and up the 199 steps in Whitby. Okay, so how much of Dracula is actually in Whitby then? Because you mentioned London there. There are three or maybe three and a half, I guess four main locations. One of them is Transylvania with his castle, which is the very kind of traditional early Gothic experience. Then there's quite a big portion that happens in Whitby. He stays in Whitby for a little time. I guess, biding his time and working out how he's going to get down to London. Then he does move to London. And whilst in London, he also travels to Essex. So there's also an Essex connection there. I think this is often lost in a lot of the films that just kind of collapse Essex into London. But as someone who is from Essex, I quite like the (laughs) Essex connection of Dracula. And he specifically goes to a town called Perthfleet, which is quite close to where I'm from as well. But yeah, those four kind of locations, one in the north of England, one in the, the kind of south of England, and then also Transylvania. Fascinating. How funny that you're doing a research and you know so much about the story and it relates directly to you and where you're from. (laughs) Dracula obviously comes from Transylvania. This is modern day Romania, isn't it? Yes, Romania. It wasn't exactly called Romania at, at the time of the novel's writing, but it's what we now know to be Romania. So what? how was the map drawn at the time that Stoker was writing then? It was constantly being in flux, but it was, it was a kind of geographical locale known as Wallachia, relating to specifically in the, in the 15th century, a kind of a noble family known as Dracul or Dracula. That's the connection there with Transylvania. And the word as well, Dracula. How did Bram Stoker come up with that? So this is really interesting. And the name actually came up quite late in the process for Stoker. So by the time he came to Whitby, he already had quite a lot of his novel mapped out in early stages. And he already had a name for his vampire. And his original name was Count Vampire, which is spelled W-A-M-P-Y-R. He had originally intended to set his novel in Styria in Austria. So if anyone has read the novel Carmilla, by Sheridan Le Fanu, which is another 19th century vampire text. This is also set in Styria, Austria. So he's he had originally intended to draw off of that kind of literary tradition. But while he was in Whitby, and specifically in Whitby's public library, he found a book called An Account of the Principalities of Wallachia and Moldovia, where he discovered the name Dracula and read about Vlad the Impaler, who was a 15th century Romanian prince. And in this book, he read that in Wallachian, Dracula means devil. It actually means dragon in kind of Wallachian. But obviously, there's quite a bit of overlap in popular imagination between dragons and and devils. And basically, the long story short of it is that he thought this name sounded cool. And he also thought that the, the story of Vlad the Impaler was interesting. So he worked these kind of features into his text. And is the stake through the heart something that Vlad the Impaler's practice of disposing of enemies, was it not? Does that feature in the story of Dracula as told by Bram Stoker? Yes, Vlad the Impaler impaled his victims on spikes and he would often behead his victims and parade very violent images and meant to be a kind of you know, threat, this is what I have done and this is what you will experience if you wrong me. In Dracula, it's slightly different. The staking comes from, I guess, Eastern European folklore of vampires, not necessarily placing heads on stakes, but still staking vampires as a means to kill them. Right. So, yeah, 
So this is how the vampires are are disposed of. If I come in here, I can Mm. put a little bit more context. And this is a way of disposing of and dealing with the restless dead or the undead. There are real affinities with some aspects of the Dracula story and the accounts we get of Revenants, something I've talked about in other English heritage podcasts, especially about the Byland Abbey ghost stories, and most recently, of course, Revenants and Remains, about these foul, demonic corpses rising from their graves and causing both spiritual and physical harm to the living. Although they're not vampires, some are blood-gorged and and display some aspects of vampire-like behaviour. They're disposed of in the same way as vampires are, that they can't be appeased by pious prayer or anything like that. You can use the protective rituals and, you can say, magic of Catholicism and the Orthodox Church to provide some protection against them. But to annihilate them bodily, you have to drive the stake through the heart or take the heart out decapitate them, which is something that happens at a point in the Dracula stories, dismember them limb from limb, burn them. And you get these accounts of dealing with revenants, dealing with the undead in medieval ghost stories, revenant stories, dating between the 11th and the 14th centuries. So it's certainly got some resonance here, although I'm sure Mary will want to say some more about where vampire legends actually have their genesis and their origin. Indeed, yes, because as you've been describing, there's a confluence of influences. Stoker, as you've intimated, was not the first author who wrote about vampires in an entertaining literary way, this immortal who feasts on human blood. Where did the idea come from originally, Mary? Yeah, and this is a really great question because, as Michael said, there's lots of kind of cultural traditions of revenant, some connected to sucking blood and and some connected to other kinds of related undead beings. And a lot of the concepts that we have about vampires today do come from Dracula. But the important thing is that Stoker did his research and he read a lot both about the kind of cultural traditions and also the literary traditions that were already existing. So one of the key inspirations for Stoker is what's known as the Eastern European vampire craze that took off in the 18th century. And this has been described as being one of the earliest media events. And it involved real life cases like an individual called Arnold Paul, who was discussed around Europe. So think of all of the kind of centers of culture and science and politics across Europe. And they were talking about vampires and and Arnold Paul in terms of science, medicine, and also just as a kind of news item. So Arnold Paul was someone in Serbia who had died, but was to believe to have turned into a vampire, and who was, as an undead monster, returning to his village to drink the blood of individuals in his community and also to kill them and and to infect them with vampirism. And the Austrian authority was called in to investigate this. His body was then dug up. And what was revealed was a corpse who didn't exactly look entirely dead. So there was blood-like fluid that appeared to be flowing from his eyes and his mouth. His teeth and his hair seemed to have continued to have grown after death. And obviously, what we know now is that this is just part of the natural decomposition of a body. So as a body decomposes, the skin starts to shrivel, which gives the appearance that nails and, and hair are growing. And, you know, different stages of decomposition, there, there will be various liquids that might look like blood. 
but in the 18th century they didn't know this and what it said to them what this body looked like was someone who wasn't dead and who had continued to be growing and, and was was feasting on the living and so what they did was they drove a stake through the heart of, of Arnold Paul they cut off his head and then they burned his body because they wanted to be absolutely sure that he was not going to come back and what's really interesting is we can see some of these characteristics in Stoker's novel so the corpse-like description of Dracula matches up with the corpse-like description of, of some of these Eastern European vampires. And the methods used to kill Dracula and, and vampires in the text also match up with these methods to kill Eastern European vampires, including beheading and staking. And he's also drawing off of, it's really fascinating, I think, to kind of trace that, even just from a, from a kind of realistic medicine point of view, the idea that this is a corpse, this is how it naturally decomposes. But people misread that and, and think that this is a vampire. Were there supposed victims of this man? There were, yeah. And there were people in the village who were dying, also animals who were dying as well. So it wasn't in, in these early folkloric accounts, it wasn't just limited to humans. You also had this kind of human to animal spread. This is also where ideas of werewolves come from as well. There were loads of these accounts. Arnold Paul is, is, is one of them. There were loads of these accounts of bodies being dug up and staked or, or individuals who had believed to have been dead, but were believed to be coming back and drinking the blood of individuals. And what you have is sometimes bodies weren't necessarily buried that deep, which meant that wild dogs or wolves were coming in and digging up, digging up the bodies. And sometimes people would go to sites, find a body missing, but there would be loads of records of dogs or wolves being seen at these sites. So obviously, logically, you would think, great, that, that's obviously a werewolf. You also get this in Dracula. So there is a lot of association and connection between Dracula and werewolves and or specifically wolves. So there's that really fabulous line, listen to them, my children, what music they make. And he's talking about wolves. So this connection, again, comes from folklore and those kinds of evolving and developing traditions. Interesting, also, isn't it, Michael? Yeah, sorry, I was just going to come in there. Yeah, you can tell how enthusiastic I'm about this. And there are very, you know, there are strong affinities with the Revenant stories written down by uh, William of Newburgh, a canon of a monastery not far from Byland Abbey, one of our sites in the 12th century. And he says it's it would be tedious to record how many instances there are of these kind of occurrences in his own time. And you get the same kinds of things. You, there is some suggestion in one of William of Newburgh's stories about the corpse being blood-gorged, but it's that thing of like them digging out of the grave, them being followed by packs of dogs, or dogs getting very, very agitated by their presence. They're accompanied by foul miasmas, by plagues that the people sicken and die after they've been around. So there are very strong affinities. You know, these undead beliefs are spread across Europe. I think an interesting thing about the vampire, as we understand it, is it is a creation of the 18th century and also how it did, as Mary said, transcend so many disciplines of the time. You know, it was as likely to be reported in a medical journal as it was to be believed by clerics and priests. The Catholic Church initially just dismisses these as being absolute nonsense, I think I'm correct in saying. And, you know, it, it becomes more circumspect about them later. But it is extraordinary that you've in early, I think, I think there is a report in The Lancet about 
some of the vampire cases in the 18th century. And it's happening at a time when it's the eastern fringes of the Austro... Oh, it's the Austro-Hungarian Empire. No, it's actually still the Holy Roman Empire at that time, of the German Empire, the, the, the Holy Roman Empire, Austrian Empire. And it's a cultural interactions and things like that. It's elite, to an extent, it's elite Catholic culture or to some extent Protestant culture, interacting with more peasant or popular orthodox beliefs, which have probably been bubbling along for centuries, I think indicated by the revenant stories that you find from across medieval um, Europe. Just going back to the Arnold Paul question, is there any truth in uh, this corpse coming back to life and killing victims or is it just literally people's fears stoking that's no pun on stoker by the way um stoking imaginations are you asking if we believe that arnold paul was actually a vampire yeah (laughs) well i think i don't know how how well we can answer that who knows i would probably lean towards no because vampires don't exist but there's always that part of you that's like but what if they do what it's a really interesting example of is the way that fear can spread really quickly and how even institutions you know such as the austrian authority or or medical bodies or even religious bodies can be taken up even if they don't necessarily believe these cases but to be taken into the conversation so i think one benedictine monk don augustine calmetz was one of quite a few religious figures in the 18th century who investigated this phenomenon. So he eventually published his work and it was titled Dissertation Upon the Apparition of Angels, Demons and Ghosts, which was first published in 1764. And this work is very sceptical about supernatural entities and and vampires. But just the fact that vampires and, and other supernatural monsters and beings were being considered by religious officials almost conferred them legitimacy. So you have all of these people, especially further away from Eastern Europe that you go. So imagine in Britain, you're reading all of these reports about what's happening in Serbia. And then suddenly you might come across this report that, you know, the Roman Catholic Church is investigating and it might make you think, might make you question. Yeah, I think the interesting uh, answer is they were believed to exist. Some Mm. people believed that they did exist. And that in itself is a fascinating historical and cultural phenomenon. And where did the belief come from? What gave it credence? And I think it's important emphasizing that for readers of these stories in France, even to some, you know, Brit, England, Rome, even to some extent Vienna, the places these stories were coming from were remote and very, very exotic and in some sense alien. And in some cases, they've only been recently reconquered by the empire from the Ottoman Turks. And there is this kind of edginess to them in every sense of the word. Do you think that's correct, Mary? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, And definitely in Britain, by the end of the of the 18th century, vampire was very much a term that was in, in vogue. It appears in quite a lot of satirical works, so you get a lot of Mr. Vampire or Lawyer Vampire. And I think at one point there was even a racehorse that was called Vampire because it was interesting and alluring and, like you say, exotic and, and, and that kind of thing that maybe exists, maybe doesn't. But what's more fascinating is that it captures imagination, I think. The way that they try and confer some kind of scientific legitimacy on them. This, this is the age of the Enlightenment. And, you know, I do often think it's, you know, it always makes me smile to think that 
vampires are a creation, an invention of this time, which is meant to be a time of great rationality and scientific discovery. And people who would have thought themselves as being entirely rational, who would reject the, to a large extent the superstitions of the church and things like that, go, oh, yes, vampires. I, I read some very, very interesting articles about that in my journal for Savants and in the medical literature. Mm, yeah, they're really worth exploring, I think. Yes, it's really interesting, isn't it, how one piece of literature, in this case a news story, then became an entire literary genre and built a totally new culture of storytelling worldwide. Because, you know, since Stoker's Dracula, we've seen lots of other spin-offs culturally in film and television as new media were invented. So it's got a lot of cultural power, hasn't it, the vampire idea? And I think that's why Dracula is a really interesting and important novel, because it brings all of this together. It it brings that kind of folkloric heritage and and tradition into a kind of growing literary tradition in the the 19th century. What we've been describing there, I think, um, in a quite detailed way, is where and how the origins of the character and the story of Dracula came from. But of course, Whitby and its abbey have also got a folkloric and interesting storytelling elements to them. So how did they feature in Bram Stoker's Dracula, the novel? Well, what strikes me is the way that Stoker introduces the Abbey, first of all, when Mina gives her description of it. And she talks about its ancient past. But to an extent, I think she's setting it up for the horrific events that are about to unfold in the in the nearby graveyard of the Church of St. Mary. She talks about it as being sacked by the Danes. So giving a sense of blood's been shed there and the ethereal grey lady or something at the window. So it's a place associated with the supernatural, as ruins increasingly were at this time. And then there's the story from Walter Scott of, you know, the nun being walled up. Well, how horrific you know, so I think he, he's riffing on Gothic ideas of the monastic ruin that were very, very current in his own time. And Mina then says, to my mind, it is the prettiest place in Whitby. Well, words that must have died on her lips for the things that unfold nearby and that she witnesses. What do you think, Mary? I absolutely agree with you. I think Mina goes there for a nice little holiday and and what she comes away from it is just an experience of horror. And it's very much set against the backdrop of this gothic ruined abbey. And I think that's really interesting that you brought up the Walter Scott poem Marmion and that kind of legend of, of a woman in white, a nun who has been walled up in the abbey, who is still haunting. And one of the kind of moments for horror for Mina is she catches her friend Lucy sleepwalking and Lucy is sleepwalking in a kind of white nightgown, which I think, again, is another very intentional nod to that story and, and to that. So those ideas of abbeys and, and hauntings and that kind of supernatural, terrifying space. So there's lots of layers of the supernatural within the Dracula narrative, and they're all sort of playing off one another, creating this general complex tapestry of chillingness, you know, this atmosphere, they're all related. In some ways, it is just so mundane, these exchanges of letters, and the way that Stoker builds up the horror through the early chapters, I think is, you know, know, it's almost like, oh God, 
Jonathan Harker on his way to as a solicitor's clerk. Wow, that really gets the pulse racing, doesn't it? <laughs> but you know, it's how mundane so much of it is. Two middle class ladies having a holiday together in fashionable Whitby. But it's the way he introduces the elements to increase the atmosphere, to give the sense of horror that the storm that blows the Demeter ashore, you know, this sultry day, you can almost imagine, just making you uncomfortable. Another thing that strikes me about it as well is the modernity of it. This is a novel of the modern late 19th century. And people did think of their time as being modern and scientific of, you know, we've got telephones in it. We have characters traveling between countries and back within the space of 24 hours. It was something that struck me in it when when Van Helsing, the kind of hero of it, the vampire slaying hero, goes to Amsterdam and back from London in the space of 24 hours or thereabouts. And, you know, that would be a a, a journey which would be tiring to do even today in the day of, of jet transport. He's doing it in the day of steam packets plying across the channel. And that, I think, adds to the sense of drama and giving a sense of the literary traditions that are present in it, that in one sense we have this ancient horror appealing to Gothic literature and to deep cultural fears. And then at the same time, we have it interacting with ultra-modern late 19th century London, the capital of the British Empire, one of the most advanced cities in the world, middle-class holiday-making, solicitors transacting their business across, across London. Boy, it's a heady mix. So it's vivid, it's very immediate, and it's very relatable. Despite being incredibly dark, I suppose it's full of technicolour in a way. And at times, I think, very funny as well. Intentionally so as well. You know, he, he knew how to use comic relief, Stoker. You know, and also you know, at times, you know, the characters are, I think, at times intentionally, you sympathise with them at times, other times you get deeply irritated by them as well. Or perhaps that's just me. I I agree with you. I I think the novel has kind of two kind of different ways that it works. You know, it begins in Transylvania. And and again, you know, railways are really important. Jonathan is traveling. And the further that he gets on the trains, the less reliable they get, the longer they take. And he goes into this Gothic castle with this kind of Gothic, you know, what he discovers as a Gothic monster. And he almost functions as a traditional Gothic heroine. But then we come to Whitby and we come to Britain and it's very immediate and we get all of these kind of really, really modern connections again by train. You know, they were going in and out of London via train and and via coach and all of this kind of thing. We have the phonograph and the telegraph and all of these modern inventions that people would have been, as you say, aware of. And we have discussions of phrenology, which was a a kind of really current topic of, of the day. And I think That's also one of the things that people would have found scary, the fact that you have this old monster invading their modern Victorian Britain. Yes, and that's what's so upsetting, I think, isn't it? But that's obviously a way of the story feeling very vivid to the reader. And for the visitor, if they want to visit Whitby and get this vivid idea as well, what places in the story should they visit to really connect with the novel well, it can almost function, uh, those chapters set in Whitby can almost function like a tourist guide to Whitby, even today, uh, don't you think, Mary? You know, the places Absolutely. that are mentioned. You know, we've got the railway station, we've got the Crescent, we've got the River S, we've got the bridge going across it, we've got the, the steps leading up to the Abbey. Of course, we have the Abbey ruins, which set up a kind of sense of menace and drama. 
the churchyard of St Mary's and church stones within it. And I'm sure you can say a bit more about those church about the um, the, the, the stones there, uh, Mary, because they are hugely significant, aren't they, to Stoker and the development of the story? There's a lot of them, I believe. Yeah, there's a lot, and there's a lot of moments in 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 the bit set in Whitby where Mina. And sometimes Lucy, but specifically Mina, has these conversations with Swales. And he talks about the gravestones and how he sees them, some of them, as being lies. And he talks about how, you know, some of these gravestones are erected and there's nobody buried underneath. And I think there's one really interesting moment in the novel when you kind of look back and you think maybe actually Dracula is, is hiding here. And listening to Mina's conversation with Swales, talking about how these gravestones are lies. Because obviously Whitby is a seaside maritime town and it has a lot of history with sailors. And there would be a lot of sailors that would die at sea. And I think this was one of the things that Swales particularly had a lot of issue with. The fact that there were these people who had died and they weren't buried there. And also the fact that the gravestones themselves told all of these romanticized stories about people, you know, beloved husband or beloved son. And he's like, this is not how they actually lived their lives. So I think, yeah, that you can go and visit the churchyard and walk around and look at the gravestones and just think, what was Stoker thinking? But also what was Mina thinking? And how did she experience the churchyard? If we were visiting in the story of Dracula and we saw the churchyard, would we have descriptions of some of the graves falling away into the sea from erosion, as has happened recently? Yes. Yeah, we do. <laughs> we both say it simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> you can take that as an endorsement. Mary, go on. Oh, no, you go. <laughs> no, no. I mean, yeah, definitely. We, this, the novel talks about gra- graves being washed away, bones protruding. You know, the shoreline beneath the abbey and in proximity to St. Mary's, the parish church, is, is a place where people explore and, and certainly did in Stoker's Day for the Ammonites, bits of jet, and who knows, bones that had fallen down from the cliff edge. Um, there is a brilliant adaptation of a Montague Rhodes James ghost story, Oh, Whistle and I'll Come to You. And it was directed by Jonathan Miller, and it's got Michael Horden in it. And it has a graveyard on the edge of the, it's on the Norfolk coast. It's been washed away by the sea, and it has bones extruding out of the out of the cliff edge and boy does it set up a sense of menace that you know human bones should be buried underground and here they are they are being exposed they're there to be seen i think it all adds to the sense of horror and impending terror in the novel yes it's another sort of image of the revenant in a way these unintentional revenants through erosion and natural geological processes that cause the previously living to come back out of the ground again in a weird, disjointed, dismembered way, which is evokes even more sort of storytelling ideas, doesn't it? Menace, maritime, murder, mortality. These are all words that are occurring to us all, I think, when we're thinking about the story that we're describing. There are some other M's as well, aren't there, Michael? Monasteries and monks. Do we have a monasteries and monks connection to Dracula? And the things that we've been talking about? Yeah, it's very interesting that when he gets down to London, why and why Jonathan Harker has gone over to Transylvania in the first place with his legal documents. And I think it's extraordinary that in Dracula's library, he has a copy of the law list 
you know, what, I mean, he must have got very, very bored in his several hundred years of isolation in that castle to want to browse lists of English solicitors. And uh, anyway, but no, it's it's so the Count can buy a former monastery, Carfax, the ruined chapel of which, or the ruins of which his pestilential foul remains will be lying. And isn't what a desecration of a sacred place we have there in the Count wanting his undead body to be lying in what had been a former sacred space. And you mentioned a grey lady in the ruins of the Abbey. Are there any other hauntings that feature in the, in the Dracula story? Uh, Mary, over to you. I think it is mainly that white lady, which we then see again when the narrative moves to London and we get this kind of legend of the Bluefer Lady. Oh, the Bluefer um, Lady, because, yeah. And I, yeah, I won't say who it is. I won't give any spoilers, but Dracula does start to turn some of the women in the story. And one of them is in London going around and her victim is children. And oh, gosh. that's where this kind of idea of the Bluefer Lady comes from because it's a very childish way of kind of describing what's happening to them, this woman in white coming to them and mesmerizing them, drinking their blood and then eventually killing them. And that that is also based on kind of real legends in that kind of area of London. That is a very particularly chilling image, isn't it, really? We always think of the mother as being very caring and nurturing and for a woman to sort of turn into this bloodthirsty creature. That's that's a really scary thought. And it's something Dracula has done. He has taken a beautiful, virtuous, if if slightly silly, upper middle class lady, and he's turned her into this monster, into an object of horror, into, as he's a, a medieval term, a satellite of Satan. Yes. Hopefully we haven't scared too many people, and if they're listening late at night, then um, sorry about that. <laughs> you might want to sleep with the light on. Or oh, oh, we've done just what you want. We've given you your pleasing terror. <laughs> indeed, indeed. In terms of uh, further pleasing experiences, uh, one would be, of course, to be a visitor and head up to visit North Yorkshire and Whitby Abbey's ruins today. So where can they find out more about this Dracula connection? Would it be actually visiting Whitby? I think you read the novel, first of all. Equip yourself. It is a cracking read. It really is. 125 years old. And of course, it is a novel of its time in a literary sense of things, but it's a brilliant read. And you, you, know, you will recognise places. And you know, most of all, going to Whitby Abbey itself, which plays such a key role as a backdrop to these horrific events that unfold in the novel, but also to create in the sense of atmosphere as well. And there's something important to say about this as well, that how is Dracula vanquished in the end? Well, they call upon the rituals and the magic of the Catholic Church, especially of medieval Catholicism. And it's interesting that nobody in the novel, as far as I know, is a Roman Catholic, far from it. Consecrated host and crucifixes provide protection and ultimately help them vanquish Dracula. And there's a real resonance there with some of the stories, ghost stories that were written in the Middle Ages, including those by Byland Abbey, which is, you know, you can visit on the same day as a trip to Whitby, and how they call upon exactly the same things to provide protection against the restless dead in the 14th century, 15th century. And there we have Stoker calling upon exactly the same kinds of rituals and paraphernalia at the end of the 19th century. And, and Stoker's, an, you know, it's, it's, although Irish, Stoker's very much a Protestant as well. And you could say is to an extent, um, you know, this is a time of 
great cultural and religious change in England as well, across Europe as well. And because in England, there's a lot of anxiety. It's still a very, very anti-Catholic country in some of senses. And it's anti-Catholic prejudices have been stirred up by, you know, large scale Irish migration, more visibility of Catholics. Um, in North Yorkshire, you've got places like Ampleforth College that's always been quite a strong Roman Catholic presence in northern England, in that bits of Yorkshire, even after the Reformation. But you know, here we have Stoker invoking the, the rituals and the magic of the Catholic Church to vanquish this evil. And you know, how would that have been perceived in amongst his English Protestant readers in the late 19th century? I, I, have you got any thoughts on that, Mary? Well, I was just thinking as you were as you were saying that that what he also does is he uses all of these Roman Catholic iconography and and you know specifically identifiably so you know so you have the holy host and the crucifix and and all of those kinds of things but he also draws and and mixes that with other kinds of folkloric ways of warding off vampires so garlic is also really important and not just the kind of pungent garlic but also garlic flowers and it's one of van helsing's very very key weapons in kind of trying to protect the women in the novel is he covers them with garlic flowers and with garlic as well as making sure that they have crosses around them so i think that's what's also really interesting is that yes you have these appeals to catholicism but you also have it mixing with other kinds of folkloric beliefs and ultimately how does he try and save their lives it's with blood transfusions it's with modern medicine that exactly. all also plays a role as well and yes. um, we have psychiatry in it as well which i think is extraordinary yeah, and again, not to keep going back to trains, I don't know why, I'm just, <laughs> I can't stop talking about them. But again, like one of the ways that they managed to catch up to Dracula is because Mina knows all of the trains. She's memorized all of the train timetables and she manages to work out exactly where to go and what trains to catch. I know, it's brilliant, isn't it? When her knowledge of the European Bradshaw is praised in the novel, isn't it? What a remarkable young woman Mina is that she knows her European Bradshaw. So I think it's such a fascinating text and that so much of it is is men having conversations and having meetings and Mina kind of sitting in the background documenting everything. But ultimately, they wouldn't have killed. They wouldn't have managed to vanquish Dracula without Mina. She's the, the mm. most important person, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Interesting. Um, if we return to how someone can visit Whitby Abbey and the general area in order to get closer to Dracula, is there a visiting season at Whitby? Well, I mean, it's the monastery is open throughout the year, but yeah, there are two big peaks in terms of pertinence to what we've been talking about today. There are sort of goth weekends held in Whitby. Now, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm reporting on these vicariously. I've never been to them. I've never had gelled spiky hair or anything of the sort, but they're a fascinating cultural phenomenon. Uh, there's one in the spring or summer, and then there's one times to coincide with Halloween, and it doesn't take too much imagination to work out why Whitby has become an as associated with these goth weekends and, and, and the location for them. It is because of the town's role in Dracula and specifically the Abbey as well. And, you know, it's something which English heritage acknowledges in its interpretation of the site. And we have to, it's what draws a lot of people to visit the monastery as well. And in the recently opened exhibition, we do indeed have a first edition of Bram Stoker's Dracula 
on display there speaking to that association. Now, there's a great irony with the timing of these goth weekends and how one of them is timed to coincide with Halloween, which, of course, is the 31st of October. Now, in the Middle Ages, that would have actually been quite a holy day. Evening tide, just as people are getting ready to get their lanterns together and put on their Halloween costumes, well, it's actually quite a holy time because it is then the vigil of the Feast of All Saints, one of the holiest days in the Christian and specifically the Catholic calendar. And it was a day of a special resonance and importance to the monks at Whitby as well, because the 31st of October is the feast day of St. Begu, a 7th century nun who experiences a vision of St. Hilda's soul going up to heaven. And it would have been a great, great solemnity and a religious celebrations at the monastery and to some extent some feasting as well. And also, it would have been also a day in which lay people may well have been admitted to the monastery. And I just think it's a great irony that unwittingly, all the Goths going to the monastery on a Halloween tide are following in the steps of the medieval faithful. And also, had Dracula been set in the Middle Ages, or had Whitby still been a functioning monastery, the sanctity of the place, the number of saints' relics who rested there meant that he just wouldn't have stood a chance. He'd have been vanquished within moments. Are there any Dracula-themed events that take place at Whitby Abbey? We've got some great merchandising, but also, you know, you know, we want people to enjoy themselves when they visit our, our, our monasteries. You know, you, you'll come for Dracula and you'll come for the vampire associations, but you will find out about the history of the site, about the Synod of Whitby, about St Hilda, and uh, such like. But no, in, over the summer, English Heritage had decided to host an event to have a world record of people dressing up as vampires at the site. And it looked like an awful lot of fun, drew widespread attention, international coverage, and they did indeed break that world record. And I do think it speaks to how the Abbey has become ingrained in the popular imagination, has an important part in popular culture with the Gothic and most specifically with vampires. And that's all down to Bram Stoker. And that was the 125th anniversary of Bram Stoker's Dracula that uh, coincided with that Guinness World Record attempt and successful attempt at that as well. Let's move on to just uh, a few closing remarks and we sort of return now to sort of our typical ending for an English Heritage podcast, which is kind of the legacy question. For listeners now inspired to read Bram Stoker's Dracula, are there any particular sections that uh, people should look out for if they're reading the novel? Absolutely. So I think all of the bits set in Whitby, Mina kind of describes, as we've discussed, are are a kind of like, you know, tourist guide in a way to Whitby. But there's just one moment in particular that always sticks with me. And it's a moment where it's at night. So previously, we've had gorgeous descriptions of the Abbey in the day, the sun is shining, but now it's nighttime. And Lucy has gone sleepwalking and Mina has gone out looking for her. So she leaves their room and their place at the Crescent and she's walking to try and find her friend. And this is in in chapter seven on the 11th of August, if anyone wants to find it in the book. But Mina writes, at the edge of the West Cliff above the pier, I looked across the harbour to the East Cliff in the hope or fear, I don't know which, of seeing Lucy in our favourite seat. There was a bright full moon with heavy black driving clouds, which threw the whole scene into a fleeting diorama of light and shade as they sailed across. 
For a moment or two, I could see nothing as the shadow of a cloud obscured St. Mary's Church and all around it. Then, as the cloud passed, I could see the ruins of the abbey coming into view, and as the edge of a narrow band of light as sharp as a sword cut moved along, the church and churchyard became gradually visible. Whatever my expectation was, it was not disappointed, for there, on our favourite seat, the silver light of the moon struck a half-reclining figure, snowy white. It seemed to me as though something dark stood behind the seat where the white figure shone and bent over it. What it was, whether man or beast, I could not tell. So do you think that um, Bram Stoker's novel still stands up today as this chilling tale? I think yes and no. I think a lot of people reading it today also need to be prepared that there's a lot of meetings and people sitting around talking about each other and also a lot of real estate. You know, Dracula buying property and them trying to find out what property he's bought. So there's a lot of that monotony, I guess, in the novel. But I also think that there's obviously something here that still resonates with us culturally. And I think it is tied to the settings and especially Whitby Abbey, but also to the characterization of Dracula as a vampire. You know, so we've talked a little bit about the 2020 Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat BBC adaptation of Dracula. And and I think there's something here that we still keep coming back to. And I think it's because it is a chilling tale and it and it does stand up. What do you think, Michael? What, what yeah. do you think is the cultural legacy of Bram Stoker's Dracula character today? I think it is. It does have a, it has a lasting resonance. And going back to what Mary said about bits of it being, to be quite honest, a little bit boring and a little bit pedestrian. Mm-hmm. I think that that is part of why the novel is, I think, a really good read, because it's sort of a, t- a novel of its time. It gives you the concerns of late 19th century middle-class society. And it's a novel of modernity where they encounter this absolute horror. This horror has intruded into the world of late 19th century British society of London, the capital of the world to some extent at that time. And how are you going to deal with it? How are you going to vanquish it? And there is something about this ancient horror, the unknown, that still speaks to us this day and still makes us feel uncomfortable and ask questions. The three o'clock, you know, we've all, everyone will have had the experience of having amplified fears in the middle of the night over things which, when you wake up in the morning, are easily solved. And I think vampire legends still provide a chilling tale to this day and still speak to us because they touch upon things which are so common in the human experience. And even if you think that absolute nonsense, they can still scare the living daylights out of you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll discover what was on the menu for Richard III's visit to Gainsborough Old Hall in Lincolnshire as part of our Feasts Through History series. Richard probably is not expecting a bowl of pottage and a bit of mutton. He's going to be wanting something a little bit higher status, some venison, some peacock, pheasant, that kind of thing. Thanks for listening. See you next time.